All right, so uh, this is our, our third session of uh, talking about the afterlife and this life. Next, what we're calling this. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, uh, you know, there's several things that I've read uh, on this topic. And one of them that stands out to me is a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. Uh, has anyone read this before? It's not like his most popular, like the Narnia or Screwtape Letters. Um, but it's... It's kind of an allegory, right? It, it kind of, I think even the title page says, uh, a dream, right? So it's, and the idea is some people in hell take a bus ride to heaven. And, uh, but it's a different presentation of how you might think of both heaven and hell. And, right, not to say that that's exactly what it's like, but it helps us imagine, uh, what, how can we understand what these concepts mean? And so I just wanted to see if there's any interest in doing sort of like a, a book club. Uh, if anybody would be interested in reading it, uh, we can get some copies. It's only like 150 pages, um, so it's not, not too bad. Um, so uh, be thinking about that, and uh, we can do that for whoever wants to uh, do a little bit of reading. It's a fun little story. So uh, that's something to think about. Now, uh, last week we uh, talked about we covered the entire Old Testament, which I would say is pretty impressive. Um, so, it's trying to see the scope of what did pe- people believe uh, in that time period. And generally what we saw is that it, it was kind of vague. We aren't totally sure what they believed about a lot of things about what happens when you die. Um, they had some ideas, and some of those ideas became more clear as you get further in uh, and later. Uh, but w- one of the other things that we saw, particularly, was there was a focus on this life, right? God's blessings here of uh, family and land, and that, you know, there are still consequences to how we live because that's going to affect the people that come after me. Uh, and so I think that's a, a helpful thing for us to hold on to, even as we do start to understand more of, of what God is doing, or as that came to be revealed more clearly. We don't lose sight of Right? This life matters too. It's not just about uh, what comes after. Like, like I was saying, uh, particularly the belief in resurrection becomes kind of the, the dominant hope of Israel. And so you see that most clearly in the book of Daniel, which is probably one of the last books to be written. Um, and, and this belief came about basically because of a new, new challenges of being exiled from the land, uh, coming back, but then facing oppression from other nations, right? It's not, we're in our land, but we don't, we're not free. Uh, and also, along with that, that oppression comes the, the issue of martyrdom, right? People that die in faith to God. Okay, well, if we're dying in faith and we believe that God is faithful, then how does that, how does that work? And so resurrection kind of comes to be understood through that lens, that it's how God is faithful even if we die in faith. And so, what happens, right, in our Bibles, you have you know, the Old Testament, and then we jump. There's uh, from the time of um, the setting of the last books, it's about 400 years to the time of the New Testament. And, um, but this is a common topic. Resurrection, uh, we see that popping up in lots of uh, other writings during that time. Um, it's typically now called the uh, it's called Second Temple Judaism, right? They built another temple after the exile. That temple lasted until 70 A.D. Uh, when the Romans destroyed it. 
And so uh, most literature now will talk about Second Temple Judaism as this time that a lot of it we, we don't, we're not, we are not as familiar with. Uh, but there were some things, as I was mentioning earlier, that were written during that time period. And, and I could say a lot about it, but I'll only say a little bit. Uh, those books are often called uh, the Apocrypha. And uh, some Christian groups count them as scripture or like a second tier of scripture. Uh, I, I wouldn't argue that, that they're scripture, but they're still helpful for us to see here's what people were thinking during this, this time. Right? Uh, I kind of disagree with the whole 400 years of silence uh, because people during that time didn't think that God had stopped working. Right? They still believed God was active. Um, and so one of the books that we're going to look at briefly is a book called Second Maccabees. Um, again, I could go on a lot into the history of who the Maccabees are. That's not really that relevant. Um, basically, they were a family that fought for Jewish independence, the Festival of Hanukkah comes out of these books, the book of the Maccabees, where they reclaim the temple from, from pagan oppressors. And uh, yeah, and so in this book, they're being persecuted. The Jewish people are persecuted by this Greek king named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Um, he was a pretty terrible guy. He uh, at one point sacrificed a pig in the Jewish temple, which is kind of not kosher. Uh, <laughs> like, very much not kosher. And so, um, we have here in this book an account of uh, a family being persecuted. There's, there's a mother, and she has seven sons. And so, I just want to look at some of this to see uh, how, how their belief in resurrection shaped the way that um, they dealt with this persecution. And we're not going to read this whole thing. Um, uh, that would have been probably like the 2nd century B.C., so like the 150s, 140s or so B.C. Yeah, I should have had a more precise date on that. Yeah, so it's about in that time. So yeah, it's 100 B.C. Yeah, so this is a little over 100 years before the time of Jesus. Um, which, again, this is off topic, but as you get into the New Testament, right, people still kind of remember this, right? Remember when our grandparents rose up and they got rid of these pagans? Why don't we do that with the Romans, right? You, you can see that in the Gospels, that that's kind of this lingering memory. of There was that one time that we stood up and we were free again. All right, but that's more for Gospel of Luke on Sunday mornings. Uh, there you go. All right, so in this story, right, mentions there's seven brothers and their mother. They're arrested. Um, and basically what's happening is the king is, is trying to force them to eat pork, right, which is, is unclean, um, not kosher, and... <clears throat> But it's God's command, and so they're not going to do this, um, even on threat of torture and death. And so, uh, and again, a lot of this is, you can read it later, and it gets kind of graphic. Uh, so they kill the first brother, uh, and then they get to the second one. This is in the, the third paragraph, starting in uh, verse 7, uh, where they're torturing him. And, and then, so look at verse 9. This is what this, this brother who's dying says. When he was at his last breath, he said, You accursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. All right? and, and so it just continues. right? They just go through brother after brother tor- trying to torture them to get them to do this thing, and they say, No, I'd rather die. But you see, in all most of what they say, they're going to make some reference to resurrection. Right? Verse 11, he just like sticks out his hands to say, You can cut these off because... 
uh, I get them from heaven, from God, and from him I hope to get them back again right, in the resurrection. Uh, verse 14, the end of that paragraph, um, talks about the hope God gives of being raised again by him. Uh, but for you, there'll be no resurrection of life, right? It's, this is for people who are faithful to, uh, to God. So these pagan uh, oppressors, they're not going to get to be a part of this resurrection. Uh, and then <laughs> they keep killing the brothers. Um, then going to the back page, um, it talks about uh, one of them saying, oh, this is the mother, right? Now she's kind of speaking to uh, to him and to the last, her last son, right? Her seventh son. Uh, but she talks about how God will in his mercy give life and breathe back to you again. Um, since you now forget yourselves for the sake of his loss, right? Be faithful to God. God will bring you back someday. Um, and then she, again, she's telling her, her last son, verse 29, accept death so that in God's mercy I may get you back again along with your brothers. Um, so, uh, and then <laughs> I like the last verse. It says, let this be enough then about the eating of sacrifices and extreme tortures. Like, okay, we don't need to talk about this anymore. This is, this is hard. Um, so I don't know. I, I can't even imagine being in that kind of situation. Um, but right, it's their hope of resurrection that enables them to stand firm for what what they believe God has called them to do. Um, so how is the hope of resurrection, in a sense, kind of revolutionary? Right? How does it inspire uh, people to be willing to give their lives for something? Yeah, right. The hope of resurrection. How is that kind of revolutionary, right? Or how could that inspire you? Why would you be willing to give your life? Because or how would that shape the way that you understand your life if you really believe fully in the hope of resurrection versus someone who didn't have that hope? Yeah, right? I mean, it, you can go through some pretty radical things because you know this isn't all there is, right? If this life is all I've got, then I might be more willing to consider, you know, okay, I'll just eat that bacon. Right, it's it's easier to die to yourself when you know that um, there's more than than just this, right? So you see how that impacted, like martyrdom, uh, plays into this. So uh, you see, I I bring that up just to say this is you can see how this belief had was widespread and and it wasn't kind of like hey I wonder if God's going to do this. It's no, this is what God is going to do. And so as you get to the time of the New Testament, this is the dominant belief. Uh, the Sadducees, they're a group, one particular sect of Jewish uh, people associated with the temple. They didn't believe in the resurrection, but they were the exception, right? Most other, most other groups did. And so you see this just kind of Jewish assumption that, that there's going to be a resurrection kind of come out in different places in, in the New Testament. So, for example, in John chapter 11, uh, this is the death of Lazarus, right? And... Um, Jesus takes his time, and, and Martha, Lazarus' uh, sister, comes out to Jesus and is, is concerned and asking, well, you know, why didn't, why didn't you come? But at one point during their conversation, she says, well, I know that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Right? That's verse 24. And uh, I, I point that out just to say her belief in the resurrection is not because she has faith in Jesus. Right? That's That's her... She already had that faith that God would do that uh, apart from Jesus. Right? So um, now Jesus says, I am the resurrection right after that. And so that's, right, he's a part of that. But you see, she already had that belief. And then the same way, uh, go to Acts chapter 23. Um, this is towards the end of the book of Acts. 
Paul is getting in a lot of trouble. And, um, you know, he has his various trials that he's put on to. And there's this interesting scene in Acts 23, uh, verses 6 through 8. Um, he's before this Jewish council. Uh, so starting in verse 6 of Acts 23. When Paul noticed that some were Sadducees, right, the group that doesn't believe in the resurrection, and others were Pharisees, he called out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, there was dissension began between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And so he explains that they don't believe. Sadducees don't, but Pharisees do. Um, so again, um, this is not a new argument, right? You can tell the Pharisees and Sadducees fought about this a lot, and Paul kind of takes advantage of that uh, to get them distracted and fighting about that. Um, side note, Paul still identifies himself as a Pharisee, even at this point, as he's been a follower of Christ for many years. So being a Pharisee is not opposed to being uh, a Christian. Um, and in fact, the Pharisees, some of them probably disagreed about Christ as the Messiah, uh, but they take Paul's side on this issue because, yeah, they believe in resurrection. And so Jesus' resurrection at the end of the Gospels, uh, it's, it's not strange because Jewish people didn't believe in it. It's strange because of the timing. Right? They believed that uh, this was going to happen. It's just resurrection would be at the last days, right at the end of the age. So the idea that somebody could be resurrected before then, that just kind of didn't, didn't make sense in their, the way they understood how the resurrection would work. And so, since we're, we're talking about it, but we kind of need to stop and define what are we talking about when we talk about resurrection, right? The concept. All right. Uh, so, resurrection, right? The, here's your Bible nerd words for tonight. You're getting some Greek here. Uh, the noun for resurrection is anastasis. Uh, the name Anastasia comes from that. And then the verb for it is anistomy. And in its basic sense, it just means to stand again or to, to rise up or to raise somebody up. Uh, and so sometimes there's, there's other words that mean basically the same thing that you'll find in the New Testament. And it's probably still a resurrection language, even if it's not using one of those two specific terms. But that is uh, the Greek word that means resurrection. And that term has a specific meaning, right? It's not just some vague term for, for the afterlife or for life after death. Uh, the word resurrection means your body being raised to new life after death. Um, right? It's more than just resuscitation. Right? We talked about Lazarus a minute ago. Lazarus, Lazarus was raised, uh, but he died again, I assume, unless he's still hanging around somewhere. Right? So that's, that's different from what we're talking about with resurrection. Um, if you're resurrected... Uh, you can't die again. Right? It's a new kind of life. And we'll see that more as we get into 1 Corinthians uh, in the next couple of weeks. All right? So it's often called resurrection from the dead, right? from, the, from death itself. Right? You're brought out of that somehow. Um, right? It's a Greek term, and, and the Greeks knew that term, but they believe that doesn't really happen. Right? Uh, resurrection is not the same as like a ghost appearing after death. Right? That's... Some people think that that's basically the same as resurrection. No, those are those are different concepts. Greeks might have believed that you could have a ghost come back, but they would have said, but it wouldn't be resurrection, right? It wouldn't include the body. And in our case, right, I would say none of us probably disbelieve in resurrection, right? We all believe in that, but maybe we don't fully understand what all that entails. Um, 
right? As, as we've seen, as we've talked about a couple times, the idea of your spirit or your soul going to heaven after you die, that's not resurrection, right? That's a, that's a different idea than what resurrection is really pointing to. Um, and so we'll see how that all fits together again as we get further into some of the passages that really uh, discuss it. But before we can really get into uh, what God is going to do for us one day, we have to understand how God made us, right? Uh, what we are. So we're going to talk a little bit, little bit about human nature, our anthropology. Uh, so there's, I want to look at two different views. The first is human nature according to Greek philosophy. Uh, and the most, I mean, there's lots of different Greek philosoph- philosophies and philosophers. Uh, but the most famous and influential was a guy named Plato. Uh, not, not Plato, the stuff that, yeah, that you play with. Uh, Plato. Um, and uh, really this viewpoint, I don't know if this phrase came from him, but uh, this view is best summarized in a Greek pun that you have, I think, on your handout that says, uh, Soma, Sema. And that translates to a body, a tomb. Right? Soma is the word for body. Sema is the word for a tomb. Uh, your body is a tomb. It's a prison. And the real you is this immaterial soul. Um, and you're trapped in this human suit. And the real goal is to escape from your, your prison of your body and your soul to be free. And again, there were different beliefs about what exactly happened. Um, but along with this is this bigger idea uh, the, the immaterial world, right, which you can't see, souls, spirits, uh, ideas, that's, that's good, and that's what's actually real. This material world, the stuff that we can see and, and touch, including our bodies, that's actually not good, right? That's less real somehow than that invisible uh, world of forms and things like that. Um, and so our souls, uh, again, different views in some places, but soul maybe pre-exists the body, is put into the body, and then gets to escape it when it dies, right? Uh, because that soul, that's the real you, right? Is, is that soul, that essence. The body doesn't really matter. Um, in fact, the body is uh, a problem, right? So, right, so this is the Greek philosophical view, but where have you heard views related to that or like that in, in the church? I mean, I've, I've heard that like in funerals where someone will say, you know, if the body's there, it's like, well, this, this is not so-and-so, right? This is just their body, right? The real them is, is with God, uh, right? That's separating uh, the, the body from uh, your, real, your real self. Um, we, <laughs> we were going to get to that. That's a good question. I was going to ask you guys. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, you're you're tracking with where I'm going, so that's good. Um, I don't can you think of any songs that kind of point in that direction. Right, your body's not real. This world is not real or good. Uh, yeah, uh, this world is not my home. Uh, I'll fly away. Right, uh, and again, some of that's in how you interpret those songs. But I think even "I'll Fly Away" has a line about like a bird from prison bars. I'll fly or some. I looked it up, but I forgot again. Right. Is it talking about our body as a prison that we have to escape? I don't know. Uh, but I would say that those ideas, when we import that into 
the Christian faith, that's not the biblical view, right? That's kind of a Christian Platonism, in a sense. Um, it's just our, our culture is still very much informed by Greek thought. Uh, that's kind of the foundation of modern Western thinking, and so we still think in a lot of those terms. And so we don't realize that actually the Judeo-Christian view was was different. And, and so it starts to kind of seep in, and then we assume uh, that, that that's, that's the Christian story too, right? One of the assumptions we make is that spiritual means immaterial or invisible, right? And, and again, there, are, there is a sense in which that's obviously true, right? We can't see the Holy Spirit. Um, but as we're going to see in, in a lot of passages, spiritual is not the opposite of physical, Right? And in fact, spiritual things often uh, impact the physical world, so they're not separate in that way. But again, if you come to Scripture with the assumption that spiritual means immaterial, then you're going to interpret certain passages a particular way that may not be the way that Paul thought. Right? Paul and Plato have very different viewpoints on some of these things. So, uh, what is human nature according to uh, biblical theology? What's a biblical anthropology? Well, uh, Right? So Plato, uh, in that philosophy said, the created world is not real, not good. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the material world, and God saw that it was good. Right? That's Genesis 1. Over and over, God creates this world and everything in it, and God says it's good. Um, and so what about us? Now, this is where I was going to ask, uh, how do you understand the difference in the spirit and the soul? Right? What do you mean by spirit? What do you mean by soul? Right? Uh, I think in the popular usage, we can't really tell much a difference between those two. Right? And, and right, sometimes it does seem a little vague. But uh, I want to look at, uh, again, we're looking at what humans are. Let's look at creation story and see how God created us and what that has to say about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the word for spirit in both Hebrew and Greek is the same word for breath, right? And so you often see uh, it talking about everything having the breath of life. Um, so to breathe your last is kind of the same as to give up your spirit, right? This idea that breath is what animates us, which is what we see in the creation story. So go to Genesis chapter 2, all right? We saw in Genesis 1 that God created everything, the material world, and called it good. Uh, then go to Genesis 2.7. Here's talking about God forming Adam. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, right? Or the spirit of life. And the man became what? What do your different translations say? A living person? Living being? Came to life? Okay, that's kind of vague. One literal way to interpret it, the man became a living soul, right? And I think that's uh, in the King James is how they translated it. And because that last word there is the word that we, in other places, will translate as as soul. Um, and so I think I put the, uh, again, the, the Bible nerd words on there. Uh, the Greek, the Hebrew word for the for soul is nephesh, and the Greek word is psyche, right? Which we kind of may be familiar with. That word, psychology, comes from, from that. Uh, and so it can be translated as soul. It can also mean uh, whole being, right, or your being. So a living being, is, is that works. Uh, or just life, right? 
life itself, that this term is, is, covers a range of, of meanings. Um, but what you see in Genesis 2-7 is body, right? God forms the body out of the dust, adds the spirit, and that equals a soul, right? The biblical view is body plus spirit equals soul, right? That the soul is not a separate thing. A soul is a way of talking about the whole person, right? The whole package. So it's, it's your body, it's your mind, your emotions, your thoughts, your desires, your will, your spirit, right? It's, it all comes together. The soul is not some separate thing. It's, it's all of you, right? And, and so a lot of times I think the best translation is my whole being, right? So a lot of Psalms will talk about it. My, uh, my soul praises God. And it is the idea of my whole being, right? Not just my inner self, not just my outer self, but all of it. Um, that's the, the soul in that sense is the essence of the person. Uh, and so if, if part is missing, then the person is, is incomplete, right? And so that's why resurrection is important because that is God bringing it all together again, right? Uh, the biblical view is if you don't have your body, you're not fully you, right? Like I've never been me apart from this body, uh, for good or ill. Um, and so, right, the, the Jewish Christian view is if you lose that, you're losing something of who you are, right? Um, and we're going to see it again once we get into 1 Corinthians next time of why some people might not like that. But we see that immaterial spirits or souls floating to heaven as, as the final destination is not really the biblical hope. Um, and well, I have a quote here that talks about this from someone named Anthony Hokema. It says, If the resurrection body were non-material or non-physical, the devil would have won a great victory. Since God would have had been compelled to change human beings with physical bodies such as he created, matter would have become intrinsically evil so that it had to be banished. Right, what he's saying is it, that if right, evil so infected uh, the physical world that God had to just say, well, I guess I'll give up on that and I'll just take their spirits out, right, that would be God losing ground because who made this world? God did. Um, and that includes all of us. Everything about us, right? Um, so if God is really going to win, it's got to be bigger than just taking out uh, some immaterial part of you. And along with that, uh, right, we start with creation, but we also have the incarnation, right? God becoming flesh. Um, the incarnation should be the final word on the goodness of the body and the created material world, right? If God could become part of this world, then this world is not inherently bad, right? There are things in it that need to be fixed, and that's what the incarnation, that's what Jesus' coming addresses, but that means that we can't, we shouldn't hate this world um, and, and the things in it. And in fact, uh, again, that was, that was challenging to people that thought in that Greek way, and the first real Christian heresy was the idea that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh, right? He just seemed to be human, but he was still really just this spirit that came down, uh, right? That was a belief that the church rejected as no. The word became flesh. Um, and along with that was a view that, well, the God who created everything, that wasn't the real God. That was some other God. But God, the Father of Jesus, he wouldn't have created this world because we're trying to escape this world. Right? That was Those are some of the first heresies uh that, that came about, and so the church, but the church stood against that and said, "No, this world is good because God made it, 
Uh, and our bodies are not bad because Jesus had one. All right. So that's our, our, our anthropology, our, our view of human nature. So what we're going to do for the next uh, couple, three weeks is kind of use Corinth in the first century as our case study, right? looking at Paul's letters to 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Um, because chapter 15 of 1st Corinthians is probably is the most in-depth discussion of resurrection in the New Testament. And then uh, 2nd Corinthians 4 and 5 also has a lot to say about that. And this is also useful because Corinth was a, a Greek city uh, that was very much steeped in this Greco-Roman philosophical thought, right? Uh, they would have been very into Plato and, and his way of looking at uh, the created world and the body and, and all that. So to switch from that view that they you know, just assumed into a Christian view would, would uh, be challenging, right? And as we're going to see, right, we don't have time to go through the whole letter, obviously, uh, but most of the problems in that letter uh, come from a misunderstanding of the relationship between the physical and spiritual world, right? Um, and especially how it relates to our bodies and what we do with them, right? Because And you see it uh, at different points going in very different directions, right? In some places, the view is, well, you know what? All that really matters is the spirit, so this, what I do with this body, well, that doesn't really matter, right? So I can... You know, have some fun with the body, because that won't affect my spirit, and that's the real me, right? That's one of the problematic views you see. Another one is uh, related, but goes in a different direction to say, well, yeah, the spirit is what's good, and the body is bad, so I shouldn't do anything with my body that might somehow taint my spirit. Uh, and that even includes uh, sleeping with your own spouse, right? That's chapter 7. <laughs> it's basically the problem, right? Uh, so you see, if you misunderstand uh, the body and the spirit, that can go in a lot of dire- directions that go contrary to the gospel and, and what God has done. So I want to look at a couple places real quick where we see uh, this, this come about. So go to, uh, well, actually, it should be on your sheet in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, maybe don't go in your Bibles because I don't want to uh, <laughs> mess you up. Uh, so here in, first, uh, in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, uh, we're getting more of that first view, right? There's some members of the church that are sleeping with prostitutes and don't seem to think that's any problem. Um, and so, uh, I guess I should turn to it as well. Uh, in this passage here, one of the things Paul does in this letter is he quotes the things that they were saying to him. We actually know that the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter and so the letter we know as 1 Corinthians is his response to their questions and some of the things that he's heard about what's going on. So, but the problem is in, in Greek, they didn't have punctuation. They didn't have quotation marks, right? So we can assume that Paul is probably quoting the Corinthians, but the original Greek text doesn't show us where his quotations are. And so translators have to guess, Right, and we have reasons for uh, picking what we pick. Uh, but look at this passage here. And what I want you to do is, I want you to mark where you think the quotations are. Right, where is Paul quoting the Corinthian church, and where is he giving his view? Um, I'll just read it uh, as try and read it as straightforwardly as possible, and uh, think about that. But again, don't look at your English other English translations because I don't want their quotations to affect your. Uh, which you're going to do. All things are lawful for me, but all, not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. 
Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is meant not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. All right, so where would you put quotation marks? Where is Paul quoting them? Uh, and also, where do those quotations stop, start and stop? Because that's where it gets a little tricky. What about in verse 12? Let's start there. What are they saying? Yeah, right? And that, that seems pretty obvious, right? Because he repeats it twice. The all things, I can do any, I can do what I want, right? Is basically, that's probably what they were saying, right? And so he quotes them twice. And it's pretty obvious because then you get that but, right? They're saying all things are lawful, but Paul says, but not all things are beneficial. Okay, but then verse 13, I think, is the tricky one. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is meant not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So what are they saying? What is Paul saying? Yeah, so I think the real question is, does, does he, the food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, that's them, right? Does the quotation stop there, or does it can include the next line? Now, I'm going to argue that it includes that next line. They would also say, God will destroy one and the other, right? Because that fits that Greek thought, right? Well, God's going to destroy the body, so it doesn't matter what I do with it, right? And when they say, right? As I mentioned, the issue is men sleeping with prostitutes. So when they say food for the stomach, right, that's, that's a euphemism for something else, is, is what they're saying. Yeah, probably. And I mean, it, it would relate to that, right? Because again, in, in that way of thinking, it doesn't matter what I do with my body because that's what it's for. It's for these kind of pleasures. That's not going to affect my real self, my spirit. And also God's going to destroy it. But then Paul, right? Yeah, that's what the Corinthians are saying, right? He's quoting them, but he disagrees, right? The body's not made just for pleasure. It's made for the Lord, as he says. And also, verse 14 contradicts that. God's not going to destroy the body. God's going to raise the body, right? Those are opposite ideas. Uh, what's interesting to me is that most English translations only have food for the stomach, stomach for food is the quotation. They think that Paul is saying God will destroy the body. Paul doesn't think God's going to destroy the body. His whole point of this letter is God's going to raise the body. Um, and so, uh, yeah, he's not going to destroy it. He's going to raise it. So it matters what you do with this body. And then in other ways, this, this view comes out like in chapter 2, uh, where they're talking about spiritual gifts or chapters 12 to 14, right? They really think something like speaking in tongues is the best gift because that's quote-unquote spiritual, right? It shows this connection to the spirit world. And Paul says, actually, that's not the most important. The, mo the best gifts are the ones that have a tangible benefit in this world. Right? So those are the kind of gifts you should desire, especially love, right, in chapter 13. Yeah, I mean, there were, we know there were Greek religions uh, at the same time that kind of were into that ecstatic experience of, of speaking in some sort of language. So it makes sense they would be drawn to that. And Paul's saying, well, you know, let's, let's not focus on that as much. Let's focus on love and you know, t real things that you can do. Um, but again, they they think of that as spiritual, right? Having this special wisdom. That's what we want. And Paul says, no, that's that's not the most important thing. So as we'll see, especially getting into next week, resurrection has implications for how we live now, right? What you do with your body matters. Um, but if you think that we're just some immaterial soul, um, then it doesn't really matter what you do here. But that's not the way that God made us. Um, your body is good. I know they, they hurt and they ache and they, they 
go through things. Uh, but fundamentally, your body is a gift of God, and what you do with it matters. It's always going to be part of who you are if we believe in the resurrection. Uh, and so that's our hope.